Welcome to Business Leaders Podcast. We're here with Chuck Blakeman in Crankset Group's office in Greenwood Village, Colorado. I'm your host, Bob Rourke, and today on Business Leaders Podcast, where we interview some of the best and brightest business owners and entrepreneurs in and around the state of Colorado, the folks that are executing. We talk about what to do and, as importantly, what not to do about growing, running, or starting a business. On the show today, we're incredibly fortunate to have as our guest, Chuck. Chuck, thanks for taking the time. Chuck's a successful entrepreneur, number one best-selling business author, and world-renowned business advisor who built 10 businesses in seven industries on four continents, and now uses his experience to advise others. His company, Crankset Group, provides outcome-based mentoring and peer advisory for business leaders worldwide. Chuck sold one of his businesses to the largest consumer fulfillment company in America and led three other 10 to $100 million companies. He presently leads the Crankset Group and a for-profit business based in Africa, focused on developing local economies to solve poverty. Mr. Blakeman is a results leader with decades of experience leading companies in marketing, import, export, fulfillment, call centers, website development, printing, and direct mail processing. Chuck, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. It's great to be with you. You know, we're, I, I, I must confess, I'm already a fanboy, so I've already read the book more than once, so that was cool. And what struck me after reading the book, and the book is Making Money is Killing Your Business, and it is in its second edition. Yep. So somewhere in that book, what crossed my mind is you started somewhere before this, and then you had a pivot and changed how you thought about business. Uh-huh. Let's dig into that a bit. Yeah, the, so the book itself is a is really a compilation of all the stuff I've been through. I, uh, I don't, I, I speak, I don't know, dozens of times a year. Keynotes just came back from a big thing in San Francisco. I'm going out again next week, and we do workshops all over the world. And uh, I've written books that are now uh, college textbooks and, rec- and and required reading and all that. And I always tell people, I I do not see myself as a speaker or an author. I'm just a business guy who speak, who talks and writes about what he did. And I think that's why these, these books have worked for me and worked for other people is because they come from years of bleeding over stuff and doing it really badly and figuring it out and stumbling and bumbling and, and mucking my way to, to what works. And, and so these are all uh, built on, on real life and not on what, what can I sit in an ivory tower and pick out and, and design for people. And my first five or I'd say my first five or so businesses were really the same thing over and over again in different industries. I'm a serial entrepreneur. I'm left-handed, right-brained, ADHD, dyslexic, all that stuff. Graduated at the bottom of my class in high school. They barely let me out. Actually discussing the day of graduation, whether they should let me go or not. That's how bad it was. And and so I, you know, I've kind of got that classic background. And, and uh, so I, I went through business after business. Once I figured it out, I'd get bored. And then there would be something else that I didn't understand. I never went into a business I understood. That made no sense at all, because why would you do that? So I always went into stuff I had no idea what I was doing with. <laughs> and then once I figured it out, went through the first full iteration of it, and began to be successful, then I would be, I'd get bored and I'd either kill the business or, uh, or move on to another one. And in that process, looking back after about the fifth business, I was looking at my sixth business and starting this again. I said, okay, I have to look back and review what's happened in the last 10 years or 15 years in these first five businesses. And I think what struck me, uh, we, we caught to talk about this thing, the BFO. The BFO is the blinding flash of the obvious. <coughs> Folks, sorry. <laughs> and Got this a would, cold in Dallas. This Nothing would be, to be done. This would be a BFO. You have a cold. 
It's a blinding flash of the obvious. <laughs> so we have this thing called the BFO, and I was, I was having a BFO with myself. I didn't have a term for it back then. I got that from another guy. But what I came out with was that my first five businesses were all in five different industries, and they were all the same result in five different ways. All I did every time, I, I had yet, uh, I think I was in my 10th or 11th business, uh, 10th business before I could say I, I, I did something that wasn't going to make money. I always made money at these things, but every single one of them, every time it grew, the more it grew, the faster my life ran. And I began to talk and whine about being on the treadmill. And it's sort of this thing I talked about to myself and to a few close friends. Yeah, I'm on the treadmill again. So like maybe the hamster wheel might have been a better, <laughs> a more appropriate understanding of that. But uh, all I did was build a treadmill for myself. And the better the business went, my, the faster my treadmill went. I looked at that after five businesses and said, this doesn't make any sense. If I build a sixth business... I'm just going to do this all over again. I'm going to build another fast treadmill. And why? What, what is this doing for me? So that was sort of, that was a blinding flash of the obvious. It was one of those moments we call it coming to the end of yourself. When I work with CEOs and, and business leaders and their teams, I need to see that people have come to the end of themselves or we can't help them. Uh, and so I'd come to my, the end of myself and said, I got, I got to figure this out. I was in an open place to figure this out. And I went into the next business, the sixth business, saying to myself, I don't have any clue how I'm going to get where I need to go. I just know where I need to go. That also laid the foundation for a lot of other principles that we built uh, on, on knowing where you need to end up, not how you get there. So the thing I came up with was I need to end up in a position where this business, this next business, gives me a life. And it doesn't have to give it to me in the first three minutes or even in the first three years, even the first four or five years, but it better give me a life. And, in, and throughout the whole process, it should be giving, a life, giving me a life. And as I formed that, it came out as I intend to make more money. This business, every other business, I made more money by spending more time. I'm going to reverse that. This time, I'm going to figure out, I don't know how, but we're going to do it. We're going to make more money in less time. The more money we make, the less time I'm going to spend in this business. That will be a driving principle in this business. That will make myself replaceable. That came to, uh, that became, that began all sorts of business principles, tools, and practices that we've developed from that. What I didn't know I was saying at the time, Bob, was that, that I'm, for my first five businesses, I was an income producer. I was not a business owner. You were in it instead of on it. Yeah, I, I thought I was a business owner because the IRS kept asking me for money and I kept having to give it to them. And we had employees and all that other stuff. But I wasn't. I was an income producer. And what I learned in the sixth business was the difference. And that's simple. That income producers, you, the way you know you're an income producer is if you're not there, the thing begins to fall apart or de degenerate fairly rapidly if you're not there. You can leave for a week, maybe. You can maybe even leave for two weeks. But if you're, if, you, if you're gone for three weeks or more or a month or you regularly aren't there, you're only there two or three days a week, the thing begins to fall apart without you. You are not a business owner. You produce income, whether you produce it directly by making the chairs or you produce it indirectly by motivating the chair makers and creating all the other infrastructure around it and then having that fall on you. If you're not there, chairs don't get made, money doesn't, doesn't get made, you're not a business owner. 
And that was part of the BFO that, that came together for me over time was I'd just been an income producer. I had one business went from a million and a half dollars to nine million in three and a half years. And we had to sell it because cash flow issues, I didn't understand cash flow at the time, that the faster you grow, the less money you have. We had a wonderful profit sheet, but uh, a profit and loss sheet, but the rest of it was a mess. But what I learned from that was that uh, uh, it's not about how much money the business makes. It's about what does it do for the people who work there. And the research is showing that the more you focus on that thing, the faster your business can grow, the more money you will make. It's just the converse. Stop focusing on the production, the assembly line, the marketing, and all that process first. Focus first on your purpose, your principles, and your people. And they'll fix the processes, the production, the uh, pricing, and all the other stuff that comes from that. So that was that was what happened to me to get me started on, on this journey that ended up years later in me writing this book. And as I did that, I had friends who would ask me, what are you doing? How can you be taking every Monday and every Friday off and having a, a successful business? So we began to help others and off we went. What was the last business that you had that you ran old school? Oh, good question. I'd say the last one I ran uh, old school, I'd have to think about that. I think it was the first direct mail operation I had. That was a, yeah, it was a, and I, I never really, that's, I never really ran them old school in terms of how you or design an organization. Again, I'm left-handed, right-brained, artsy-fartsy. I never went to business school. I never had any interest in doing what, what somebody thought would work. I only did what I thought would work and what, would, what actually worked. So I just did stuff. So my businesses were always generally flat. There were, I don't, many of my businesses, we never even had business cards because it didn't make sense. We didn't have titles. We didn't have, we just got stuff done. There's 120 people and we just got stuff done. But all of them had their negative impact on me of, of forcing me to, into a faster treadmill. That's what had to change. So I, I think the organizational side has uh, well, we've gotten much better at, at being flatter and, and totally flat and self-managed and that kind of stuff. We've continued to enhance that. But that was always there because it intuitively worked better than the classic top-down hierarchy I call the pyramid scheme. Uh, we, we always did that. The real difference was in the sixth business, I made it my objective to make sure that I got off the treadmill as the business got on the treadmill. And that that resulted in things like what we have here on our board in our training center here. We have this, uh, you can't see it in the podcast, but uh, we have this thing splashed across the front of our training center in 12, 14 inch letters. It says, make your own business rules. You know, as, as I think about the folks that are listening and they go, that sounds really familiar. You know, I'm, I'm working hard. Yeah. Well, I don't know about effective, but hard. Uh -huh. And so the title of your book, Making Money is Killing Your Business. Yeah. Well, one thing for sure, I would think that most guys would go, say again? Right. So let's dig into that sure. a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of what we do is counter logical, not on purpose. It's just that so much of what we think is true is not. We've just, over generations, just assumed that the last guy had it figured out when, in fact, he never had it figured out either. Uh, we assume things, we uh, take on assumptions that are bad assumptions. And one of them is that the reason for a business is to make money. It's a really dumb idea. Uh, and good entrepreneurs will even tell you that. Robert Hershevac on the, on the Sharks, he says, you know, I don't go into business to make money. 
Go into business to solve a problem, to do something meaningful. Steve Jobs said, uh, I never got up in the, paraphrasing, but pretty close. I never got up in the morning thinking about how much money I could make. I got up thinking about what cool technology could we create next? And that's, uh, that's the purpose of this. So when most people, when they lose their job or they have an entrepreneurial spasm and quit because they were making money for the man and they want to do it on their own now, most people go into business in survival mode and they think the reason I'm in business is because I have to pay my mortgage. Yeah, paycheck. Yeah, or I have to pay my 50 people, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I got to get the, the urgent stuff paid this month. And so we make chairs so that we can pay the bills this month. And guess what? It all happens again next month. We make the chairs so we can pay the people again and off we go and we are on the eternal treadmill because we bought the assumption that the reason to be in business is to make money. The reality is, and the research shows, that people who go into business to make money tend to make very little of it. And making money is not an empowering vision. It's one of the three tenets of what we call the big why. Making money is not an empowering vision. People who go into business to do something bigger than making money are almost always much more successful and make a lot more money. So don't go into business to make money because that's the thing that's killing your business is your focus is on making money. Figure out what is it that we're good at? What could we offer the market? Who would buy that? How do we get that to those people? Let's serve somebody. Let's solve a problem. And let's do this for something bigger, for for something that's more motivating. I'm going to get a life. They're going to get a life. Uh, We're going to create a legacy. We're going to develop cool technologies that will change the world. Uh, uh, Bill Hewlett is a a good example of that. Back in the 60s or 50s, he said, I stopped getting invited to to, – uh, MBA programs, because I told them we didn't have a business plan. We made this up as we went along. You know, and that's, that's But what he said, Bob, one real uh-huh. quick thing he said, but what we did know was that we wanted to make a difference in the world of technology. See, it was driven by a strong purpose, not by making money. You look at Facebook, Google, LinkedIn, you just name them, all these apps and all these things that are multi-bazillion dollar businesses today, and they did not have making money as their primary purpose. That, there's something in that for us. What are you doing this for? If you're doing it to make money, you're in trouble right out of the gate. Find a bigger reason to do this or you're in trouble. As folks are listening and they're going, you know, this sounds really what's been bothering me. You know, you're mm-hmm. describing them and their company. Yeah. And, you know, we see it on TV when the guy's on the treadmill and it's going just a little too fast and off the back end he goes. Yeah. You know, and I think about it. So there's another component other than book writing. You have the three to five club. Uh-huh. And can you walk folks through the process of, of what you do and what you found in a business to help folks? I think it was called business maturity date. Yeah. The question has driven me my whole life is why do what, and I got this from somebody else. I've stolen most of what I do. Why do what others can and will do when there's so much to be done that others can't or won't? I mean, why do that? That's an entrepreneurial mindset, filling the holes, looking for the gaps, why do that? Somebody's already doing that, but nobody's doing that. This was one of those three to five club. Uh, I, as, uh, as we grew businesses, a lot of my, we had, we always had a small business. Our business, our biggest one went to 9 million. Some of them were $500,000 businesses and we were always small and then I'd get bored and moved on until we got to this. And in that process, I always saw these, these uh, small business consultants. I was never a fan of consultants and now that I play that role on TV, but uh, I, I was never a fan of them because they they didn't really seem to have any background in this stuff. And they seemed to, the pattern was this. 
I'm a small business consultant until some mid-level or larger organization offers me a contract and then I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. And the real answer, the, the real message was nobody else will buy me right now. Maybe I can trick the small business people into buying me. And until somebody with a lot of money buys me, I'll work here. All of a sudden, I'm not really a small business advisor. I'm a, a big business advisor, and off we go. And I saw that pattern year after year, people coming in and out. And as I did that, the rationale was from all of these people was, well, you can't make money helping small business owners. So that's a conundrum. You start there, but you don't end up there because you can't make good money helping small business owners. They need it the most, and they have the least money to, to okay. So, so nobody was solving this problem. Go back to my question, why do what others can and will do when there's so much to be done that others can't or won't? Nobody could solve the problem of how do you make money as well as impact with small business owners. Three to five club emerged out of that. For about two or three years, I tested things. I tried things. I experimented masterminds and and one-to-ones and hooking people and networking people and doing all kinds of things to see how we could help small business owners in the most meaningful way and still make money at it. And three to five clubs eventually emerged out of that. It's a very simple concept. Uh, it's not new. Nothing I do is new. I'm an innovator. I'm not a creator. I take good ideas and I and I change the way they're presented to the world and and uh, move them into different categories. And so we took business advisory, which happens usually with with larger organizations. You have uh, uh, Vistage and Tab and all these other uh, business advisory groups that charge you know, twelve to fifteen hundred dollars a month for people who are $5 million businesses. Well, what about the 26 million businesses in America who aren't at that level? The overwhelming majority, the 98%. We took that concept and we brought it to small business owners, but you can't just bring it the way it's it's worked at that level because it's a whole different set of problems down at this level. We got mostly income producers who haven't figured out how to become business owners yet. And there's a transformation that has to happen in there so we brought that in, and it was one of the reasons I wrote the book, Making Money is Killing Your Business, is to support three to five clubs. Here's a, here's a compendium, a manual, a reference manual for how to build a business. Based on my, at the time, seven or eight businesses that I've built over the last 20 years, here's how I did it. Here's how I think you can do it. And we use that to help three to five club members. So three to five clubs meet twice a month. We have a maximum of 24 people in a club. They're in the couple hundred dollar range rather than $1,500. So it's very affordable for for smaller business owners with under 20 employees. And the objective there is to help them figure out how to build a business that makes more money in less time, gets them off the treadmill, and gets them back to the passion that brought them into business. I forgot this used to be fun. And that's really the, the passion. So we're working with those guys who a lot of times then they'll grow their businesses and they'll go on and they'll get involved in a Vistage or something like that at another level where they have different problems. So that came out of that whole thing. Nobody can solve this. We decided we could solve it. We've got them in Denver. We've got them in Pennsylvania, Virginia, Ireland, Kenya. Uh, I'm missing a few places uh, starting in, in Atlanta. And we intend to have them in every city in the world with more than 50,000 people in them to begin with. We'll be the McDonald's of business advisory. If there's a functioning chamber of commerce, we should have a much, much better functioning set of three to five clubs for business owners to learn to build their businesses. That's been transformational for a lot of businesses. We've been doing that since we experimented with it from 2006 to about 2010 and implemented it oh, in 2010. Great time in the, in the economy. Sure. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, might, might as well. So yeah, we find out what works and what doesn't. We found out it's fairly recession-proof. When people are doing well, they don't mind spending a few hundred dollars and learning some things. When they're not doing well, they're desperate and they're willing to spend money on things that will actually, if it's going to help them, grow their business. And that's been the fun part is we get testimonials from the book uh, and from the uh, from three to five club members all over the world. So the, the cool thing about it is, is that a facilitator can make a decent living off of this. They can own their own business, like owning a McDonald's franchise. They can own this thing and they make, uh, they can make a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars a year doing this, and it's really about ten to twelve hours of of classroom time a month, ten hours usually, and then you've got to recruit people and all that, which fills up the rest of your time. But our model is built on people who want to also get a life. We 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 do what we ask other people to do. So our business advisors, we had one start out, she built four, three to five clubs in a year. That's unusual, it takes longer than that usually. And then from there on, she had Mondays and Fridays off. She worked three days a week in, in that business, building those three to five clubs and pulled down about $135,000, $140,000 a year. So you can make money doing things with small business owners and making an incredible impact. She also had the opportunity to build her own business in that area and become a, a, an area leader where she could have a number of clubs with her so she could have increased that, that impact if she wanted to, as well as her revenue. You know, for the folks who are here in three to five, uh -huh. let's dig into the, the why sure. behind three to five. Yeah. Well, you know, you've always heard apocryphal notions of people coming up with stuff in showers. It was in a shower. I actually came up with three to five club and the business maturity date in a shower. <laughs> I specifically remember stepping out of the shower. I'm not kidding you. you know, this was an idea I was, I was trying to, I was mauling over this problem. How do we do this? And what do we do to motivate people and to give them a, a clear and utter clarity about where they're going and how they could get there? And, and these th things came to me on that. Usually most of my thoughts come to me on a bicycle. I ride long distances, 50, 100 miles on a regular basis. And that's where I get my, that's my shower. But these literally came to me in a shower that uh, we ought to be able to have a device that is a, is not a, uh, it's not a shtick. It's not a tricky thing. It's a true tangible thing that allows people to move forward with, with real precision on how to get, how to make a business, how to build a business that makes more money in less time. And the three to five club and the idea of three to five years came out of that. What I postulated up front, total BS that, uh, or not BS, but total intu intuition, which is very close to BS in t at times. I made an assumption that any business in the world could be built from a business card to the point where you're getting at least Friday afternoons, maybe even all of Fridays off, and it's making money without you in three to five years. Not making money every day, but making money on Friday. You don't leave on Fridays like a dentist does and shuts down his practice. That's not, you're an income producer. I'm talking about the thing still goes on Fridays and you're no longer there. And then you can take it from there. So business maturity was not meant to be the end of your business. What it, what it is, is the introduction of a second resource that we never get from our business. What are we supposed to get from our business? Money. That's what we're taught. There's a second resource that our business should give us that it usually takes away from us, time. The old time for money gig. Yeah, because the, the Protestant ethic taught us we trade time for money. The industrial age taught us we trade time for money. You give me eight hours, I'll give you 50 cents. That's the trade. You trade those things. So if you want more money, you trade more time. You're on the treadmill. 
no, no, we're going to change that equation. Make your own business rules because he who makes the rules wins. We're going to decide that your business needs to make you more time, more money in less time so that your business is now manufacturing. It's producing money as well as producing time. And we believe that a business can be producing both within three to five years in some degree. And then you you raise it up from there. And then it's just every year you raise the, raise the game. So when you start out, you might be losing $50,000 a year out of your 401k to start your business along with your investors. But by the fourth year, somewhere in there, you ought to be making a minimum, you know, forty or $50,000 a year and getting Fridays where you are not in the office, you're doing something else, whether it's riding your bike, thinking strategically, writing a book, being with your kids, whatever it is you want to do. And then you can take it from there so that seven or eight years from now, you're making $200,000 and you're working Tuesday through Thursday and you're taking the last week of the month off. That you know, kind I, of stuff. And I can hear the listeners go, man, I, I want to look at that business plan. Yeah. So exactly. So I've never done anything. I'm a big stickler for this. Uh, when we recruit facilitators, the first thing we ask them is, have you ever owned a business? And then we go from there. But everything we do is, I teach other people to do, I did myself. So the first person to have a business maturity date was me. And I was writing this book when I came up with this idea of a business maturity date. And I put it in that book in 2008. I was writing the book in 2008, first version, first edition. And I put in there that on February 18th, 2011, three and a half years from now, I've already been in business for a year and a half. Uh, I'm going to drink my own Kool-Aid. If I think this can be done in three to five years, I'm basically going to do it in a little over four. And February 18th, 2011 at 10 a.m., I'm going to cross the threshold of my business. It's on page 91 of this book. I'm going to cross the threshold of this business, and my wife and I are going to go to New Zealand for a month. And we're not going to check in except to see that there's money coming into the bank, just to, to prove our point. And we intend for this business to make money while we are gone in, in the, the fourth year, beginning of the fourth year, without us for at least a month. Because we figured anybody can leave for a week or two weeks, and maybe the thing will limp along. But if you leave for a month and you come back and it's still healthy, you're a business owner. You're not an income producer. So that was our goal. And I put that in the book. And I said, the reason I want to leave at 10 a.m. is because at 8 a.m. I'm going to have a mimosa with my staff. And we're going to talk about this and have a big cheer. And then we're going to turn the business over to our staff. and We're going to leave for a month. The next paragraph says, by the way, at the writing of this book, I don't have any staff. I got nothing. But, and, but I go on to say, but that doesn't matter because I know exactly where I want to go and I know exactly when I want to be there. And those are the right questions. And with the right question in front of me, we're going to be able to figure out the how. It wasn't until 11 months before we left, we hired our first person. And two months into this, she began to figure out what we're doing. And she said, you're never going to make it, <laughs> which wasn't real helpful. Great it's like, confidence. Yeah, yeah. Thanks a lot. I'm, I'm hiring you to help me get yeah. there. And you're saying, you're never going to make that. <laughs> But then we hired our third person uh, three months before we left. And uh, February 18th, at, uh, 2011, we had four staff besides ourselves. We had a mimosa at 8 a.m. We crossed the threshold at exactly 10 o'clock, waved goodbye, went to New Zealand for a month. And when we came back, the business was in better shape than when we'd left for New Zealand. First weekend, you kind of got the, the jet lag behind you. Uh-huh. And you're going like, <laughs> huh, one I can imagine oh, what yeah. was going on in your mind. Well, it's exactly what went through one of my clients' minds. They had these guys had a uh, a law firm that had been for 18 years. Think of this, Bob. 18 years, nine million dollar law firm. They could not break through after five or six or eight years. They're still stuck at nine million. And when I got to these guys, they'd read my book, and the principal of the firm said, uh, "I asked them when was the last time you guys took a vacation." They just looked at each other, and they said. 
we think it's possible that we both might have taken a week off in the last 18 years. Now that's the worst case scenario, but one week in 18 years and you're stuck at 9 million and you want me to help you build the business, make more money and get more time off. And you can't figure out how to get past nine and you haven't taken a vacation in years. Well, in, uh, in a year and a half, they were up to 15 million and both of them were now regularly taking two weeks every month and a month in the summers. And they've been doing it for the last five years and their, their law firm is now gonna to top 25 to 30 million this year. They're gonna be able to write a book. They started a second business they always wanted to start. But the reason I say that story is because I had, when the principal went on his first month, he took his wife and his daughter and they went to Malibu and they rented a house for a whole month and he and his daughter learned how to body surf and, uh, and to surf on a board. And he said, and I asked him, what, what was it like? And you began to figure it out when you were talking to me. He said, you know, that first week, it went so slowly. It's like, how am I ever going to survive this for a whole month? The first four or five days, he's just crawling up the walls. And then he began to settle in. And the next couple of weeks were kind of cool. And then with 10 days left, he was saying, holy crap, there's only 10 days left. How am I going to, you know, there's so much I want to do in the next 10 days before I go back. And it had reversed itself. And he'd learned how to, to be a human being again. But he, I said, what was your BFO? What was your blinding flash of the obvious from that month? He said it was really simple. I'm 47 years old. My daughter's nine. I could have gone the rest of my life and never had a week or even two days straight with my daughter. I now get a month every summer and I take her to school. I take my kids to school two weeks of the month. I take my kids to school and pick them up. And I get to do that until they graduate. I get to do this the rest of my life. That's my blinding flash to the obvious. The question here, the fascinating thing here is because I know you've got listeners who are saying, yeah, but my business is unique. Yeah, different. It's different. It's different. I'm a dentist. I can't do that. We work with a lot of dentists. I'm, I, I fill in the blank. I'm We've done, feel, yeah. yeah, you fill in the blank. We've worked, we actually worked with dentists who had a, a pediatric dentist who said, well, that might work for regular dental clinics, but I, I run a pediatric clinic and my business is unique. So it won't work for like it would for regular dentists. I mean, we all have excuses for why this won't work for us. And I'm telling you, I haven't found a business yet. I haven't found an industry yet where somebody didn't take a business from zero to to freedom in, th in three to five years. Can't find one. Somebody brought me dog walking once. And I went on the, online and found in about 15 minutes, I found a company that went from zero to $10 million in two and a half years walking dogs. And the, the person said, yeah, but you know, I don't want to build a business. I just want to walk dogs. And you're going to tell me I have to build a business? And I just looked at her and said, if you own a $10 million business, you can walk dogs anytime you darn well please. The question right now is, do you have to walk dogs? Yeah. Or do you get to walk dogs? Yeah, the, the underlying is intentionality. You know, in... And in reading through the book, um, purpose-driven activity uh -huh. on a regular basis, and you explore business plans. And, you know, yeah. I, I used to ask folks, you want a three-year business plan or a five-year business plan? Then your answer is, eh, not so much. Right. Yeah, so let's, you know, we're all taught. Yeah. You need a business plan. Sure. You yeah. know. This is one of those things where I, we, I talked before we went on the air. I never studied other people or, or what the status quo said you're supposed to do in order to do something, how you market, how you start a business. I, I never started, did any of that stuff. I just went to, my, to what I was good at and what the market wanted, and I tried to marry those two things, and I kept asking myself, what do my clients and potential clients need, and how do I form that? And as a result, I never did a business plan. 
in all the businesses in the 10 plus businesses I've done, I've never done a business plan. And I would get some feedback on that, some flack for that. And I knew intuitively that it was a bad idea, but I couldn't explain it. So I did research on it. I speak all over the world and I've done this many times. You sit in front of a crowd of say a thousand people and you ask how many of you out there did a business plan, you're gonna find three to 6%, 30 to 60 people out of a thousand did a business plan before they started their business. Now there's, a, there's data right there. What that tells us is that in the face of all the pressure we get from the SBA, you go to the SBA and say, how do you start a business? They're gonna say, do a business plan. You go to the MBAs, how do you start a business? Do a business, go to any other A, they're gonna tell you to start with a business plan. In the face of all that pressure, only three to 6% ever did it. That's because everybody intuitively knows it's a dumb idea. We get on board with good ideas. You know, fasten your seatbelt, 90 plus percent do that today. We've been educated, that's a good idea and it intuitively makes sense. Business plans don't. And then I asked those three to 6%, well, how'd that ever work out for you? And the collective response is a giggle. I've yet to find a single person where their business plan worked out the way it was supposed to. That doesn't mean I'm against planning. What I'm against is planning in a vacuum, static planning, and planning an entire year to five years in a static world as if you actually knew what was gonna happen for the next year. You don't control 80% of what's gonna come at you. So what we need is a strategic plan. The difference is simply this. Business plans are functioning on three, three questions. Where am I? Where do I wanna end up? And then question number three is, how do I get from where I am to where I wanna end up? And most of a business plan is wasted on what we call the giant how. How do I get from here to three years from now? Voodoo, fortune telling, dumbest thing you can ever do. It's like taking snapshots of, of here to the Capitol building, which is nine miles away, and then actually trying to get to the Capitol building based on the snapshots. <laughs> That's what a business plan is. It's a static foretelling of the future, and then you actually try to get to the future by relying on something you wrote six months ago. A strategic plan is what we call a 2.1 strategy. You don't get three, you only get 2.1. Number one is valid, where am I? Number two is the most critical piece, where do I wanna end up? And then you don't get three, you don't get how do I get all the way from one to two, all you get is how do I get from where I am to two weeks from now or four weeks from now? Three months is really stretching it. So that's how we teach people to plan. Utter clarity on where you are, utter clarity on where you wanna end up a year from now, and then what do you need to do in the next two to four weeks to begin to get there for uh, a year from now. You do that for two to four weeks and now you have a new number one. I'm here, do I like what happened? Do I still wanna get there? If that's true, then I'll do this again. Or I don't like it, I change it out. So it's iterative planning that responds to a dynamic, ever-changing world. There's a famous uh, general from uh, uh, von Schlesen or something like that from World War I who planned, German general, he planned the attack of Europe right down to re resupplying shoelaces to the front line. I don't know if it was him or somebody else after the war famously said, no battle plan survives its first encounter with the enemy. Mike Tyson said it recently too. <laughs> yeah, well, Mike yeah, yeah, boxers say regularly, you have a plan until you get punched. Yeah. And then, it's a, and then you, you figure out, but you still should have a plan. You still know where you want to end up. I want to win this fight. So, so for the guy that comes in or lady that comes in, all right, they're here. They've, they've joined the three to five club and they've sit down with the group. Mm -hmm. And let's say... What's the typical commentary that you hear from them about week four to five when they come back in? Uh, they're drinking from a fire hose that this is a, a complete reorient reorientation. It sounds like a cult. Uh, 
There are so many things that, are, that they're not used to hearing about how you actually are successful in business that it, it just takes a while. We actually have an orientation where we, we give them a lexicon. It says, here's a bunch of terminology you'll hear that you've never heard in the business world around you that will actually help you begin to build a business. So they're drinking from a fire hose and it's reorienting their view of business and their view of why they're in business and how you would actually be successful. It's a complete rewiring of so many of the things that we've, we've learned through the ages that nobody's ever bothered to test. And so the stuff we come up with, again, this isn't a book I wrote. This is a life I've lived. This isn't a three to five club. This is, we have 24 months worth of content, and most people stay in the groups for four plus years because they want to go through it again. It's not about the content. It's about the community. Every two weeks when they come back for twice a month, we have a, a, a topic we cover that gives them homework that actually is practical, tactical stuff that will change their business. You know, it's, it's, it's funny. Was it, there was some... I don't even know who this is. It's not that which you don't know. It's that that which you do know that isn't necessarily so. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, our statement on it is adults don't learn unless we're disoriented. You, know, you learn it out I of think your I, comfort zone. Yeah. As soon as I think I know something, I shut down. Oh, I know what he's talking about. Truth. Yeah. And so we have to we have to disorient people. You have no idea what a plan is. We're not against planning. We're against the kind of planning you've been taught to do. We're not against process. We're involved in a, a completely different kind of process that will create freedom for you, et cetera, et cetera. So you just have to use the, the tools differently, but you have to wake people up and help them realize that what they've been operating on for the last 10 or 15 years was false information. You know, for the, for the folks that go through this process, there's some quantity of those folks that just won't, won't adopt or fail. That's right. What's the biggest reason that you see for folks that join the three to five where they don't enjoy success? Yeah, great question. And we help people on different levels, like uh, with three to five club people who are with zero to 20 uh, stakeholders, we call them, not employees. Uh, the biggest issue there, I'd say there's two of them. Uh, there's, 10, there's 10 or 15. We've labeled them all, but two big ones pop into my mind. Number one is the craftsperson's dilemma. And the craftsperson dilemma is, I did not go into business to run a business. I went into business to make chairs. I'm a great chair maker. I made chairs for Bob's Chairs Incorporated, and I made Bob a killing, and I got tired of making Bob a killing, so I had an entrepreneurial spasm and wanted to put my name on the building or on the business card, and so I did that. And now I'm, so I'm, I'm making chairs, and they're piling up in my basement. And I don't understand it, because when I sold them for Bob, they flew off the shelves. Well, the reason that happened is because Bob ran a business and you're running a craft. And you don't understand that build it and they will come is not a business principle. It's no. a movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a movie theme. And so that's a huge issue is we have to get people across that threshold. 30% of business is the craft. 70% is business. How do, you, how do you get these things? How do you let people know that these things are in your, in your basement? How do you let them know that you're different than the next guy? Advertising, marketing, uh, staff relationships, leadership, uh, understanding your, your profit and loss statement. Most people come into 3 to 5 Club looking at their bank statement to figure out whether they have money. I have not looked at my bank statement in 15 years. It's the dumbest thing you can ever do to know whether you have money or not. You look at your profit and loss statement. Here's how you read it. So it's just stuff like that that they don't know that kills them. The second thing that kills them is that they, uh, and it's, it's related to the first, but they, ne they never make the shift from income producer to business owner. We have this, we, what we call the seven stages of business ownership. 
Stage four is the classic American dream where you're actually making money. The problem with that is you're not making time. And I built five of those that were profitable and all I did was I got a treadmill out of it. The big mindset shift is what lives between stage four and stage five. Stage four is where you get money. Stage five is where the business begins to produce both that's time big, and that's money. That's a big let go. It's a huge let go. There's ego involved. I'm, I'm the best chair maker. Now I'm going to have to make other people successful making chairs. Uh, this is my baby and I'm going to turn my baby over to somebody else to babysit. There's all kinds of head trash involved in that. And that's one of the things we have to deal with in three to five club is to get people to where they want. They want the end result bad enough that they'll get, they'll let go of their stupid process for not getting there. But that's a huge piece of this is I just can't get past being an income producer. I'm a micromanager. I can't help being involved in everything. I never get past it. You see this on a small business level from zero to 20. And you see this with giant corporations. Steve Jobs went through this in his first iteration with Apple. They fired him because he couldn't let go. He was an income producer. And he finally learned after leaving that he could do this differently. He came back and created a much different organization out of it. So those are two of the bigger ones right there. Mindset shift. It's all about what's in my head. I, I say this all the time. The chaos is not in your business. It's in your head. If you want to know what's in your head, take a look at your business. If you don't like what you see in your business, it's because of something in your head. We got to change your view of the world, which will cause you to make different decisions, which will give you different outcomes in your business. It's both and. We're not consultants in our business because consultants come in and make your assembly line go faster. And we're not uh, coaches because coaches just deal with your head. You, that's a false separation. You look at successful people, their heads are squared away and therefore their businesses are squared away and they figure out how to do a better assembly line. It's both and. You know, as, as I was sitting here thinking, and we talked a little bit before the show about college curriculum and talking about why is this not taught basically yeah. at academic institutions? Right. There's got to be some level of pushback. What have you run across? Well, it's very simple. Academics are teaching what the academic before them taught them, who is teaching what the academic before them taught them. And none of them have actually ever done any of this to see if any, any of it works. There's this caustic... Uh, self-protective uh, mechanism in education called peer review. And if you want, if you want a PhD, you get, you need to get peer reviewed. And what is peer review? It's making sure that you conform to whatever everyone before you has said to some degree with your novel new thing. But here's basically what you have to do: you have to conform to all this stuff. And so everybody's teaching what the last guy taught, and they're always ten or fifteen years behind in, in what. Uh, uh, and what should actually be taught. And sometimes they, they're never going to catch up. But people who haven't done stuff should not teach stuff. That's just an axiom of life. And it's that's not teaching marksmanship if you've never shot. Don't teach how to shoot a gun or how to pull a tooth if you've never shot a gun or pulled a tooth. That's not a good idea. Nobody is teaching in dental school that hasn't pulled teeth, I guarantee you. But somehow we have academicians out there teaching business who have never uh, started or, or have not made a lifestyle out of starting and running businesses. It's, it's criminal. You know, as, as I think about, there are a couple of things I want to touch in. We talked a little bit about planning early on, and, and you have a viewpoint of planning versus a viewpoint of execution. Yeah. Would you dig into that just a little bit? Yeah. Uh, one of our mantras, we have a lot of principles. We try and give people principles that they can grow from. Here's one of them. Planning never creates movement. Movement creates the plan. Planning never creates movement. Movement 
creates the plan. The number one indicator of early stage success in any business, whether it wants to become Walmart or Bob's Barn Grill, they both have one thing in common up front, speed of execution. They don't sit around thinking about thinking about getting started. They don't theorize. They don't postulate. They don't do case studies. Seth Godin years ago said, stop doing case studies. By the time you finish your case study, the, the world has moved on. So execution actually finds us the plan. That's, we're not against planning. We're against planning in a vacuum. I've said that. So what do you do instead? You plan while you're moving. And that's difficult to do. That's, nobody wants to do that. You either want to plan, which makes you an, academ an academic, or you want to move, which makes you a crazy, uh, wild-eyed entrepreneur who just runs into brick wall after brick wall and fails uh, often. The combination of the two is I'm moving forward at a reasonable pace without running into brick walls. And as I'm doing it, I'm constantly taking soundings. Is the water getting shallower? Is it getting deeper? What's happening here? And I'm getting the data, and I'm making inline, uh, on-course corrections all the time. And I'm flexing as I go. So number one, uh, the number one indicator of early stage success is get moving. Number two is stay moving. And number three is be flexible as you move. Don't stop moving if you come into a problem. If you come to a fork in the river, take it. And because you know where you, uh, you have utter clarity about where you want to go, you will find out very quickly you're going up the wrong fork. Lewis and Clark is my favorite example of how to start a business. And they would go up the wrong fork only about 50% of the time because they'd take it. And, but very quickly, within a half a day or hours, they'd know it's the wrong fork. It's going the wrong direction based on where they wanted to end up. So planning never creates movement. Movement creates the plan. All of that is built on a funny word called conation. We talked about it. Yeah. Sounds like a political movement. <laughs> it does. Yeah. It's a, a conation to conate, C-O-N-A-T-E. It's the most important business word you've never heard. And that's not marketing. I truly believe it. I've been studying it for years. I found a woman who studied it her whole life and made millions placing NBA and NFL uh, athletes using the word conation. It's one of the thousand most obscure words in the English language. And I think we w I'm on a uh, one-man campaign to make it the most common word that you understand as a business owner because it is at the root of being successful. Conation, the fancy, I found this in a book called uh, Self-Made in America by John McCormick or McClintock. I always forget which one it is, but uh, he's a, he was in the 70s, he built hair salons in, in Texas. He's not a motivational speaker and it's the only motivational book I'll recommend because he actually did stuff. And in that book, he talks about the word conation. And just for a little bit, just a couple pages, and I got into it and realized this is a deep well. And I've studied it for years. And what it does, I've not just studied, I've learned how to act on it. A fancy definition for conation is the will to succeed that manifests itself in single-minded pursuit of a goal. The will to succeed that shows up in uh, a single-minded pursuit of a goal. Another way to say it is, I want something so bad, I'm already doing it. That's conation. I had a heart attack 100, about 125 or so days ago. Uh, I was already fit riding my bike 11,000 miles a, a year, 1,000 miles plus a month. Uh, in some cases, and I had a, a mild heart attack and found out there were some dietary things. I was eating things that I was processing, but it was leaving behind bad stuff. And I had some genetics I had to deal with and all that stuff, but it was mostly lifestyle, ironically. I was eating sugar and consuming a lot of sugar on my rides, but I was leaving behind triglycerides and all kinds of other bad stuff. And the normal operative view of this is, okay, I got to change my lifestyle. So I'm going to spend the next two weeks binging on dead cows and sugar. 
and get it out of my system, right? I'm going to stop smoking, so I'm going to chain smoke for the next two weeks. That right there tells you you have no intention of doing it. Uh, none whatsoever. Conation says as soon as you figure out something is, is the right thing to do, you simply do it. You don't wait for tomorrow. So the day after I went and found some things on diet and changed my diet, and I was already at like 12% body fat. I'm now at seven. I didn't mean to lose weight. I just found out that sugar was bad for me, and I stopped eating sugar that day, and I haven't eaten it since. That's conation. The will to succeed that says, I want something so bad, I'm already doing it. That's speed of execution. That's, it's a combination of speed of execution. It's a combination of, of that, get moving, and being flexible. All of that is conation. There's an opposite word to conation that I found looking uh, at a, uh, a little book on the thousand most obscure words in the English language. I was just leafing through it, and I found this funny word, velleity, V-E-L-L-E-I-T-Y. And the thing that was funny about this, the reason it caught my eye, I mean, I was literally just leafing through this because my word conation is in this book. And I was leafing through what other weird, and, and velleity, there it is. And the reason I stopped on it was because of the beginning of the definition. When you hear an antonym to something, it never starts with the antonym to. Stop does not, the definition to stop does not start with the antonym to go. You have to figure that out. This book actually said velleity, definition, the antonym to conation. It started with, hey, let me hit you over the head with, this is the opposite of that. So remember what conation is. I want something so bad, I'm already doing it. Then here's the definition in the book. The desire with no intention of doing anything. <laughs> you know, it's, Wouldn't it's, it be great if someday I'm going to, I sure hope that. All of that is velleity. And how often do we do that crap? Every self-help book you buy. <laughs> yeah. I'm good enough, I'm strong enough, and doggone it, people like me. And, you know, we chant at vision boards, and we walk on coals, and we sing kumbaya, and then we don't do anything. We play office. So conation is huge. It's a huge indicator of success. Number one indicator of success. I want something so bad I'm already doing it. Or get out of my way, I've got somewhere I need to be. You, you know people like this who are moving in a direction, and they're moving so, so steely-eyed in that direction, they don't even have to say, get out of my way. You just step aside because you're going to get run over. That's conation. As you bring your groups of the three to five club together, and I'm thinking about the atmosphere change yeah. after a few sessions, mm -hmm. what's the transformation that you see? Well, Henry David Thoreau said, most men lead lives of quiet desperation. And if he was being politically correct 100 and some years later, he'd say most people. But you get the idea. We lead lives of quiet desperation. As business owners, we get the opportunity to do that twice in our personal life and in our business life. When I ask you your name, the next question I ask you is, how's your business and what do you say? Great. Business, business oh, is great. great. I'm dying inside. I can't tell you that. Business is great. I wake, up, yeah. I wake up in cold sweats every night. I can't tell you that. Business is gone. It's all great. Everything's great. There's quiet desperation that says, I don't know. I don't know. This was, this was a huge mistake. And they come into three to five club or we work with them. We work with CEOs at a level that uh, they're beyond three to five club, but we'll do this as well with them. And you see that, that angst, that quiet desperation. I don't want to, I can't tell anybody that I'm hurting inside. That all I did was it, either I don't even have a treadmill. I don't even have revenue or, or money, or I've got bucket loads of money and I got no time. 
In both cases, it's quiet desperation. Is this all there is? You know, the 1960s song, is this all there is? And you see them begin to get hope because they get utter clarity about getting somewhere. And that changes the quiet desperation to quiet resolve. This isn't about uh, walking on coals or singing kumbaya or chanting at vision boards or getting all that motivational stuff. I think it was, uh, I can't remember which one of the guys it was, one of the famous motivational speakers. I think it was Zig Ziglar who said, motivation is like food. You need it every day. I don't agree. Motivation should not be like food. Motivation is uh, that lifelong thing that you want so bad that you'll get out of bed every morning for it. And you don't need to chant at a vision board. It's quiet resolve. It's get out of my way. I got somewhere I need to be. Popeye said it best. <laughs> yes. I've had all I can stand. I can't stand no more. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so you, you do this because you can't do anything else. You're compelled to want to be, I want to, Steve Jobs, I want to build cool technologies, uh, fill in the blanks. So that's, that's what we see happening. We watch people begin to transform, not because their business has changed right away, but because they can see it can. Now they're beginning to get tools, simple tools and practices and methodologies that will actually allow them to be conative and get where they need to go. So we give them another principle. Success is actually quite predictable if you're doing the right things. Repetitively. And we, and we can help you do the right things. You know, I'm sure that in this conversation, there's something really important that I've probably not asked you that I should have that really describes what goes on in this organization or in your book. Yeah. You know, and, and what I'm looking for is for that that business person that's out there that's maybe in that quiet desperation mode or they're going, mm-hmm. I don't know my children. Yeah. You know, what else should we have talked about that I haven't asked yeah. you about? The big why. We have four building blocks that we say are fundamentals for a business. The last one is outside eyes in your business. Where do you have to go say three magic words? I don't know. Where do you go to say those three words? Three to five club is a place where you get to go say, I don't know. Or as I work individually with CEOs and corporations or their leaders, they get to say to me, I don't know what I'm doing. There was a poll back uh, about 20 years ago, Gallup did it, of the Fortune 500 CEOs, they asked one question, what is your greatest fear? And the number one answer was, my greatest fear is to be found out to not know what I'm doing. (laughs) These are guys getting tens to hundreds of millions of dollars. They have no freaking idea what they're doing. So outside eyes is the last one. Then freedom mapping is another one. Process mapping your way off the treadmill. How do you get off this treadmill? How do you get this stuff out of your head, through your heart, onto a piece of paper so somebody else can do it? And then the third one from the top is strategic plans. How do I actually figure out how to create a plan that, I, that will actually serve me rather than me serving it? The top of the pyramid, the top, the number one thing that every business owner needs that almost no business owner has is a big why. What are you doing this for? It's not for the money. That's the big ruse. You think you're doing this for the money, and that's your biggest problem. Making money is killing your business. You get a big why, and you will find reasons to make money you never imagined. And a big why is very simple. We have a three and a half hour workshop on it. We can do it for two days with, with companies. But a big why is simply something that you have that motivates you to get out of bed and come to work every day that you can never check off as complete. If that's something that's driving you, you'll find it's probably not in your business. For instance, I want to be a great dad. I want to solve world hunger. I want to build a company that has a legacy that lasts long after I'm here. There's something much bigger than your business and selling toilet paper that, that should be driving you. And when that lights you up, you know that you're off the treadmill. We talked about some of our, our uh, heroes. Alan Weingarten had a nice, tidy little uh, mortgage business that he was making really good money off of for like 15 years. But he didn't have a big why. 
He got his big why. And he came to me a few months later. He said, I know I've got my big why. And I asked him, how do you know? And he said, because it has me. And I said, well, how do you know? I said, that's cute. How do you know it has you? And he says, because now every decision I make in business, I make, I filter it through my big why. Will that get me and us to that big why? Buying that copier, starting this new business, whatever it is. And as a result, he sold, uh, last year he sold his mortgage business and he owns five assisted living centers, small 16 to 20 bed assisted living centers that he built from scratch because it fit his big why. And he's making multiples more money from that than he ever made from the, the mortgage business and having a lot more fun. So that would be my, my closing shot here is uh, if, you want to, if you want to be highly successful, figure out what you're doing this for. Get a big why, something you can never check off is complete that'll drive you the rest of your life long after your business is gone. You know, to come to a close, we've actually been at this for a little while. Wow. Um, Time flies when you're having fun. Absolutely. For the folks that are out there that are looking for a three to five club, if the, you know, one, how do they yeah. find out if there is one? Mm -hmm. And two, if there isn't one, what do they do? Yeah, we're just getting started. We spent five years testing the model here before we rolled it out. We didn't want to franchise it until we knew that we had something that was time test and proven. It's been about eight years now, seven, seven plus. And now we have them in uh, Pennsylvania, Virginia, Ireland, Kenya, uh, Atlanta, a couple other places around the world. And we want them in every city in the world. So if you don't have one and you want to get one, first thing to, to talk about is whether we can help you become a facilitator. And a facilitator goes through our training. It's a very small upfront fee. Uh, comparative to most franchises. You pay us a fee, you come in for our training, then we work with you for the next six months to help you build three to five clubs where you are locally. If you don't see yourself as someone who could be a facilitator, get a hold of us and say, hey, I want a three to five club in my area and, and I don't have any right now. And we can give you some ideas on how to find the facilitator or get us out there. Uh, I'll come out and do workshops for a very minimal amount of money with 30 or 40 or 50 people in the seats because we can get them excited about starting a three to five club. And in that group is somebody who might facilitate as well. And then, uh, uh, yeah, they can do that. They can go that route and find us all over the world that way. So we're, we're excited about seeing these everywhere. For the folks that are going to look, where best can they find you on social media, et cetera? Uh, the first place to look for me is Chuck Blakeman. You can put that in. That's my Twitter handle, Chuck Blakeman. Uh, if you put LinkedIn Chuck Blakeman, you'll find me there. Uh, Facebook Chuck Blakeman. You can uh, anywhere. Inc. I write. Inc. I write uh, on a regular basis for Inc. Magazine. Just put in Inc. Period Chuck Blakeman, and uh, my profile will pop up. So that's a good way to find us that way. And, and ChuckBlakeman.com. If you want me to be a speaker or do workshops or any of that kind of stuff, work with CEOs and and leaders of organizations, you can find me there as well. Chuck, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed our visit. And thanks so much for being a guest on the podcast. Well, it's been fun. It's been fun to represent our, our crew for doing this. Super. Thanks a lot. You bet.